2: food at restaurants tastes good honestly because they use a lot of salt you probably want to like turn away when they're salting something
0: welcome to didn't i just feed you a podcast about feeding kids hi i'm stacy and i'm megan before we get into this week's episode don't forget to subscribe right where you're listening and if you find yourself with an extra minute i mean not even in a minute 30 seconds, leave us a rating or a review too. Those ratings are really important for other busy parents and home cooks to find us. Stacey, I'm really excited about this episode because this is one of my colleagues at Kitchen who we're interviewing today. I do feel like it's a little bit funny. We were very careful not to call this episode like everything you'd ever want to know about making Chinese food at home even though Christine our guest is Chinese American and even though that is a highly requested episode and we do really touch on why I don't know did we really touch on why we didn't say like oh this is how to cook Chinese food but you kind of you kind of mentioned it.
1: I feel like that's not what this episode's really about, right? So Christine is a professional recipe developer. She was called on for a major project. There is a Michelin-starred Chinese-American restaurant started by chef Brandon Ju called Mr. Jew's in San Francisco. Yes. And she spent three years. I cannot believe I, I almost it. fell over when she told us that. Being recipe developer. She was basically a translator. So there was Brandon Jew. There was a co-author and there was Christine who really spent time in Brandon's kitchen, watching them make all of the foods that they make at his restaurants and then translating it for a cookbook that would be useful to a home cook. So we really wanted to talk to her about her expertise in this, the context of this project, which is really thinking about the difference between restaurant cooking and home cooking, and basically how to translate restaurant-quality, restaurant-level food to your home kitchen. But Brandon happens to be Chinese-American. His restaurants are... Chinese-American restaurants. For, I'm dying to go to them. I've never been. I, I know. Me right? too. We should be, make like a company, didn't I just yes. do a company field trip? <laughs> I cannot wait till we can travel again. I know. Someday yes. soon. So he's Chinese-American. And from what I understand, his background, he's grown up with Chinese-American food. And he that is his frame of reference. That is what his experience has been about. And as a chef, he was... Classically trained, I believe he worked in a bunch of Italian restaurants for a long time, and he wanted to return to an exploration of Chinese-American food, which, as we talked to Christine about, is different in a lot of ways than Chinese food from China And then specifically, like, there are so many regions, she explained that Chinese American food is based primarily off Cantonese food, right? And there are all these other different types of cuisines within China. So it was hard not to end up talking to her a little bit about Chinese American food and touching on all those topics that people are dying to know more about, like... How do you cook rice perfectly and how do you make a great stir fry? So we will get to all of those topics at some point with the right experts as we find them. I thought this was a really exciting way to start the conversation about Chinese food in America because a lot of us were introduced to it. A lot of us who are not Chinese, who are not part of the Asian community, learned about it from restaurants, Chinese restaurants. So it's really interesting that that's really what she's here to talk to us about.
0: Yeah, there's so much that I took away from our conversation with Christine that made me be like, okay, we have to have Christine come back and talk about those single, you know, do a single subject episodes with us, whether it's about stir fry or fried rice or even like, I think there was something funny about how she used Panda Express as a great example of, like, really Americanized Chinese food, but something that we all, when you say that, you know exactly that, like, you picture the sweet and sour chicken pieces over rice and, like, the container that they come in. And she's just so great that I hope that she will come back and distill even more of her knowledge to us. But today we get to talk to her about how we can take what restaurant chefs know and make our home cooking better and easier. So I'm gonna introduce Christine without any further ado. Christine Gallery is one of my colleagues at thekitchen.com where she works as our food editor at large, which means she takes all of my recipes scratch and makes them actually beautiful and consistent across <laughs> the site among many other things. She's a trained recipe developer and tester, an editor, a food stylist, a culinary instructor and an on-screen talent in instructional cooking videos. She's also a mom. After graduating from Le Cordon Bleu in Paris, France, she's done stints at Cook's Illustrated, America's Test Kitchen, taught children and adults how to cook, helped run a demonstration kitchen in Boston, and was a food editor at the Test Kitchen at chow.com. Her most recent project is Mr. Jews in Chinatown, recipes and stories from the birthplace of Chinese American food that just came out in March, and it is a beautiful book. Welcome, Christine. Christine, a ton of our listeners have asked for more episodes that are related to Chinese restaurant recipes, to stir-fry cooking. Um, And I think we have to start off an episode about that subject with talking about how Asian culture and food in particular are wildly popular in our country. And as a result, they're often the subject of whitewashing. You know, we see a lot of like how to make Asian food healthier, easier, faster, better than takeout, while the ingredients haven't been normalized in the US and they're considered exotic and described as rare or unpalatable when they've been enjoyed by millions of people for over thousands of years. What would you like to see in the way that Americans consume Asian food, recipes, ingredients, and culture?
2: I mean, I think I generally just want people to be a little bit more open-minded and to go in and look more deeply into those types of foods and not try kind of the typical restaurants that they would think of. Even in San Francisco here, we have a whole range of chinese food. So there's a Panda Express that's going to open around the corner from my house. And then two blocks away is Clement Street, which is the Richmond District, which is kind of like a second Chinatown here in San Francisco. And that the food there is really different from what you'd find at Panda Express. There's lots of regions in China and I think a lot of that hasn't come over to the US as much, so it's a little bit of like a a little bit of a tunnel vision that we have on what That food should be like. And unfortunately, sometimes it gets that label of being greasy or sweet and sour or MSG, all those kinds of things. But a lot of Asian food is actually really simple. There are a lot of things that are just steamed. There are a lot of things that, like you said, are are stir fried. And it just starts with a lot of vegetables and a lot of grains. I'd love to see a little bit more of that kind of creeping into what people think about as Asian food. I'd love people to go out to restaurants and try something new. I've been doing that myself. You know, we order a lot of takeout now, obviously. And so instead of getting the three things that I know my family will love, I'll get two. And then I'll order something that I've either never never heard of or, you know, go, wow, that sounds really refreshing so recently we got something where we got dumplings and noodles and then i saw this like tofu salad on the menu and i was like tofu salad i don't really think of tofu and salad a lot from chinese restaurants so i ordered it and it was delicious it was like julian really thin slices of tofu with cucumber and it was really lightly dressed and super refreshing and it kind of just opened up my eyes because it was it wasn't something i grew up eating and so for even for me I'm still trying to like discover new things and try new foods. And I'm hoping people will kind of step beyond the things they've found, you know, growing up or you know things that they've found just at their local restaurants that they've been ordering forever and just being more adventurous and not labeling it as like you said exotic or weird and just realizing that you know there are foods that are delicious, that are healthy. Other cultures have found delicious ways of preparing them that maybe you n- you've you never tried and just kind of going in with that mindset.
1: I think you're touching on a couple of things here that I just want to pause on. First, that I think Asian food has been thought of and treated in a lot of ways as a monolith in America. So I love hearing that you, as a Chinese-American, there's tons of Asian food, even from China. You're Chinese-American, that isn't familiar to you. Mm -hmm. China's a humongous country. And then Thailand's a completely different country, and Japan is a completely different country and culture. So this idea that there's so, so much breadth and culture and history there to explore is really exciting. <laughs> you know yeah. and it really opens things up for everybody and I I love that. I love the idea of just picking something new and trying it. I also think that you're speaking a little bit to Chinese cuisine and Chinese American cuisine which are both varied and different. Chinese cuisine, I imagine, is more varied than Chinese American. Mm -hmm. But Chinese American food is legitimate food that has grown out of the Chinese immigration experience here in the United States. Mm -hmm. But it's different. And I'm wondering if you can just briefly kind of talk us through how you think of the difference between Chinese food and Chinese American food.
2: Well, Chinese American food, you know, developed out of a necessity, basically, as Chinese immigrants came over, they didn't have access to those same ingredients that they used to have. And so they basically do what you should be doing. You look around and see what's growing and see what's local. And they took that and then they, you know, kind of just made it their own. Chinese American food comes from, it's very Cantonese based, which is actually where my family is from. And so it kind of came out of really one type of regional food. And so it's not very spicy. There's a lot of stir frying, you know, my family made a lot of soups, dim sum is Cantonese. And so it's kind of a very small subset of what, you know, food in China was. And it's seen through the lens of a lot of California ingredients here. And you know, I'm in San Francisco. so. This Chinatown was one of the very first Chinatowns, and that kind of Chinese-American food just developed from there. Beef and broccoli, all these other things that, you know, uh, chop suey, you know, it it also was a central part of the gold rush here. You know, a lot of Chinese immigrants cooked and did the laundry, and they operated these kind of small restaurants in a way. And so, you know, that's kind of how Chinese-American food came to be. And they modified it a bit for Western palates too, you know, you're going to be honest about it. So it's a little different than Chinese food because I think a lot of Chinese American food, we think of the sweet and sour or something with a side of rice. And um, in China, it's actually a very more balanced way of eating. There's more dishes on the table, but each thing is probably very much more simply prepared than you would think. And so I think even how we eat has changed a little bit to kind of match the lifestyle here. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, because my, my grandmother, who's an amazing Chinese cook, put four or five dishes on the table every single night with a pot of soup, with a pot of rice. And me imagining doing that nowadays yes. is like, <laughs> no, there is no way I can do that while working and with an eight-year-old daughter. And you know we're starting soccer next week. I don't even know how life is going to be. Um. That's,
1: yeah, I can really relate because Greeks also eat meze style, right? So we yeah. have lots of little plates. And I was traveling through Turkey recently, uh, a couple of years ago, and speaking with a woman there, and she was talking about the lifestyle. And I said, well, have, you know at home do you eat differently because it's so hard to make all of these different plates. And she was like, actually, no, we haven't, but there's a whole cultural system around it. First of all, she lived with her mother, so grandma was around to help. But they would cook like a pot of beans and some grill, some meats and kebabs like on the weekend. And then you'd make a big amount and kind of parse it out over the week. And then Mm. on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, you would still cook one dish, but you would add it to the kind of smorgasbord (laughs) so that every day you had a different combination of these foods that you've been prepping and eating throughout the week, which I thought was really, really interesting. And I came home all excited to adopt this new method and it, it, it promptly fell apart. <laughs> <laughs> but I just think it's interesting because it is, it's not, it. we talk a lot about the ingredients that are locally available, but it's also culture and lifestyle yeah. interact to impact the way that we cook and the way that we eat as well.
2: Yeah. That's so funny that that just sounds exactly like what my grandmother did. Cause you'd look at the table And you'd be like, you were cooking all day, but like there was a stew that was made two days before. Right, yes, exactly. The soup was this massive pot that was like taller than I was as a kid and it would last two or three nights. And then she had all these shortcuts. Like she would go to Chinatown every day, but she would buy a roast duck or a chicken. So one of those courses, she wouldn't cook. So it's that whole buying something store bought because they do it better. You're supporting like a local business. And so then you look at what's left and she's maybe, like you said, making like one or two things instead. And that's such a genius move, but it also takes like planning, which, you know, that's yeah. just another layer <laughs> to add to everything. But I I kind of miss that because, you know, me pulling off even three things a night is like, hooray. But I you know. know. It's <laughs> like
1: you make a main and you're like, oh my God, I completely forgot a vegetable. Right. <laughs> and, you know, it's
2: like... Everybody wants one pot dishes right now. You know, I develop recipes that aren't, you know, Chinese and those do really well. And for good reason, you know, I would rather still have a one pot dish that has vegetables and a grain and some kind of protein than, you know, maybe going out for fast food a lot. And so I think there's validity in both styles of eating, but it is kind of a lost art the way I think our grandmothers used to cook.
0: Okay, there's like a thought forming from you, which is really interesting, and and how you're describing both Stacey, your Greek grandmother, and Christine, your Cantonese grandmother. In that, there is something that they were that was inherent for them that was sort of thinking and cooking like a restaurant chef, which is really interesting because I know you just spent like almost a year working on this Mister Jew's cookbook. Three years. Oh my gosh. So much longer than I even imagined where you were like hanging out in the restaurant and translating like restaurant techniques for home cooks to be able to cook at home, but there's something really interesting. Like if your grandmother's making one big batch of stew and going to serve it over the week, that's actually like a lot of how restaurants prep and cook. They're not making every single plate that goes out from scratch You know, at the last minute. They're doing all this prep ahead of time. And they're also sourcing some of their ingredients from people who do it better, whether it's they don't have a baker in their restaurant and so they're having bread brought in or they're like buying the already prepared ducks or chickens in order to cook that. So I think there's something there where it's like, we can shift how we serve our families at home so that we can do more of that buffet style, which I know because we're all in food media, we're very aware of the thing where family nutritionists, family food writers are really talking about, oh, you know, you'll get your kids to eat a lot more vegetables if you serve it family style. And then all of us are like, we don't really want that. We want the one pot meal. Mm But sort of shifting to think of your kitchen maybe a little bit more like a restaurant could be really helpful for for that so i'm wondering if you could speak a little bit about your experience working on mr jew's cookbook and then also like what did that really teach you about the difference between restaurant cooking and home cooking and how does that translate to how you cook at home right now
2: so mr jews is a modern chinese-american restaurant here in san francisco the chef Brandon jew grew up here in san francisco he started out in Italian cooking, and then he had a very similar story to me, where my, you know, both of our grandmothers passed away unexpectedly, and both were like the cooks in our family, and they passed away without, you know, passing down those recipes to the two of us. And so we kind of really connected on that level, where we were, where we were like, we remember all these foods growing up, and they were so delicious, and we have no idea how to make them. So he went from, you know, Italian Calmed cooking and did a deep dive into Chinese cooking, and this is how the restaurant came about. So I was so honored to be able to go into the restaurant and basically follow the cooks and follow him around for you know over you know, a year or two, documenting the what they do. And it was really interesting to me because I, even my mom, who's a good cook, would buy a lot of pre-made Chinese sauces. So besides soy sauce, we'd have oyster sauce, hoisin sauce, chili sauce, all these other things. And Brandon was trying to actually make those sauces himself. So like everything from scratch. And I didn't realize that until (laughs) until I started, you know, getting the recipes from him. Because each recipe would have like three sub recipes. So there'd be a spice mix, there'd be a sauce, there'd be a brine there'd be a vinaigrette or you have to ferment something. I was fermenting mustard greens and chilies. And, you know, my, I was hanging Chinese sausages in the bathroom for a while (laughs) (laughs) to cure them. That's awesome. uh, I love that so much. My daughter Sophie came home and like stopped dead in her tracks and was like, why are there those things hanging from my (laughs) shower curtain rod? And I'm like, they'll be gone in five days. Don't get it really steamy in there. Just, just leave them alone. So like, as a process, it was incredible because you realize how much work restaurants do to make food at at least a restaurant on this, this level. But like you said, Megan, they make giant batches of things and they, they store it, you know, they'll make the spice spice mix for a couple of weeks when they make chilies and ferment pickles. It's a big crock of it. I stopped by the restaurant last night, and they're sous videing beef tendon, fifty pounds of it. You know, and so the volume they were doing was incredible. And so I would be given the full recipe. So I'd be given a recipe that starts with fifty pounds of tendon, and then my <laughs> job is to be a translator of a sort and a bridge to the home cook. So I'm translating this recipe and scaling it down to something that hopefully, you know, makes sense to a home cook. But I'm also kind of negotiating with the chef a lot, kind of, you know, we'd say, well, do people really have this piece of equipment at home? If they don't, what can they use? Can they substitute this ingredient that's super local to san francisco and super seasonal like dungeness crab can they do that with king crab so my job was to really be a translator and kind of bridge that gap between the restaurant recipe and the home cook recipe and we like quickly found out that there were some recipes that would never make it into the book because you need a meat slicer and i'm like no one is going to buy a meat slicer (laughs) to make shrimp chips you know it sounds lovely but like even you know even a dehydrator we went back and forth on whether or not we'd include recipes um, that call for a dehydrator and we ended up calling for it because they're really they're actually not that expensive they're $30 and they're just such a good way to preserve food and to concentrate um, the flavors in food and drying things out is a pretty central part of Chinese cuisine. So we kind of like, you know, I kind of gave in on that. But (laughs) um, (laughs) there's a lot of push and pull, you know, and then you have a publisher who wants like to make sure recipes are home cook friendly. So I think in the end, we kind of came up with a certain number of recipes that we thought most home cooks could do. And then there were more of these things that we called master recipes. And the master recipes were pretty much what they do in the restaurant no cutting corners. There's a duck that takes two weeks to cure, and then you have to smoke it, and then you have to roast it. And in the end, I think it became a book that was as much about the cooking as it was about being a cookbook and recipes. And I think that's a nice balance there. Hopefully that makes it more accessible to, you know, different kinds of home cooks.
1: I totally agree about that. And I I actually really appreciate because sometimes I get these chef cookbooks. And I'm super excited to see, I don't know, maybe it's because I'm a food nerd. Maybe not everybody wants this, but I want to see how they do it in the restaurant. I want to read about that. I want to understand the stories, the chef's motivation, like where they're drawing inspiration from, how it works in the restaurant kitchen. But at the end of the day, I'm not going to cook those recipes at home. So (laughs) they're good context. Yes. But I want recipes that I can actually cook practically. So I think that's a really nice balance. And I also think that it's important to point out something you said where you were like, some recipes are just not going to make it. Because I do think maybe novice and just learning cooks do this more than experienced home cooks. But this idea when you start that it's not worth it or this result is disappointing because your main point frame of reference is your favorite restaurant. It's not a fair point of reference. Home cooking And restaurant cooking are two completely different beasts. So, you know, that really kind of drives that home and is a reminder that what you cook at home is going to taste and look and feel really different. And that's okay. That can still be totally delicious. You even worked for three years (laughs) on restaurant recipes, and they just have to adapt to be accessible to the home cook. Yeah. So that's a really important point. Yeah. I think we have to, we cannot
0: leave this conversation without some really like concrete takeaways from our listeners. Not necessarily about how to translate restaurant recipes at home or even the full breadth of what it means to cook Chinese food at home, but like what are, what is one thing that you want more home cooks to know about how they can build flavor or make food more flavorful at home?
2: This is not even like, chinese food specific but like salt the importance of seasoning the importance of salt yes food at restaurants tastes good honestly because they use a lot of salt you probably want to like turn away (laughs) when they're salting something yes it's true it's Um, so true (laughs) and you know unfortunately you know that's kind of the reality of what makes food taste good and you know it's still going to be less salt than something that's very processed and preserved that, you know, you micro, you know, a frozen dinner is it's still going to have a lot less salt than that. But salt is the reason why foods taste good. They salt along every step of the way and they're tasting. And so, you know, I use kosher salt mainly at home because I can like pick up the pinch and throw it in really easily. And so I feel like people have to kind of stop being afraid of salt and to just embrace that that box and that canister that's sitting in your pantry.
0: Yes. And I, do, I think there's something, I'm glad you said you use kosher salt and because of the way it feels, but I think there's something that sometimes gets missed by home cooks where it's like, you should, you should buy one type of kosher salt and one brand and sort of stick with that because that... Like salt's very little, a little bit, you know, whether it's diamond crystal or, oh my gosh, I'm blinking on the blue box name. Morton's. Morton's. Yes. Thank you. They have different crystal sizes. So really like choosing one salt and sticking with it is one of those things that can make your food consistently better without like tons of effort or thought. Yeah.
1: That's so smart because it's true that you get used to salt, salting, At a certain level, you know, it's not always measured, even though even when it is measured, it's going to vary. But you want your pinch, you want to know how salty that's going to make the food. Yeah. So that requires a consistency in the product that you choose. Yes.
0: Okay. So that's a great general tip. What about Chinese and Chinese American cooking? What is like the one thing that you want home cooks to
1: know about Chinese cooking and
0: Chinese-American cooking. There is
1: such a demand for those recipes. And I think that people maybe veer towards the ones that don't require any quote-unquote special ingredients or that seem very, very simple, which sometimes is an accurate reflection, sometimes isn't, of how it's prepared in... Uh, you know, in homes where people are cooking this food as a matter of their culture and as a matter of course. But, you know, if you want people to start being more adventurous, like you said, at the top of the episode, not just in what they order at restaurants, but in what they cook at home, what are like, what's a big tip or a couple of tips?
2: So I'm going to go with equipment because I think there are lots of ingredients I can ramble on and on about. But- (laughs) If anything, you know, something that that I've learned over the past few years is how amazing a wok is. And I didn't buy one for a long time, even though my grandmother, that was her main sort, her main, you know, pot and pan. She used the wok for everything. And um, when I started, you know, working in a test kitchen... We um featured Grace Young, who is who's written books about walks. She's amazing. I actually wrote about her and called her the Walk Evangelist because she will like travel with that walk and yes. like she'll you know, she'll show you how to season it if if your walk is rusty, she'll like clean that right up for you. She's amazing. So she converted me. and, you know, at first, I fought it so hard. I was like, I don't need another piece of kitchen equipment. I don't need it. I have my frying pans. I have my Dutch oven, I have my saucepans, I'm good. And then I realized you can use a wok for almost the same things that you use using those pots and pans. Plus more. So you can stir-fry in it, obviously. You can steam in it. It's so great because it has that wide surface area. You can just stick a steaming rack right in there. It comes with a big, roomy lid already, perfect for steaming. And honestly, I reach for my wok when I deep fry now because you actually use less oil in a wok than you would like in a Dutch oven because a Dutch oven has straight sides, right? So you to fill it up like a yes, couple inches, yes, you need yes. to put a ton of oil in there. A wok has slanted sides, so you get that same surface area, but you put in like maybe half the amount of oil. It heats up faster and you're just not wasting um, oil when you're deep frying. And so I really encourage people to just embrace the walk because it's one of those like amazing tools, you know, and it's something you can pass down to your kids like a cast iron pan. It just gets more beautiful as you use it. So get a walk, people like really go for it. Yes.
0: We just had a skills showdown, you know, where we put like techniques to the test on kitchen and one of the for popping popcorn and like the second place winner was a walk. And actually I've had follow up conversations with the writer where she was like, no, actually like popping popcorn in my walk has become one of my most favorite takeaways from that skill showdown. And. I will link to this in the show notes, but Grace Young actually has an incredible Facebook group that's called Walk Wednesdays, and like everyone in that helps people source their walks and troubleshoot if they do have rusty spots, and of course, Grace is very active in there, but it is a really wonderful place um, to talk walks, and I just also want to add that I think when people are wanting to cook Chinese food at home, really being picky about their recipe sources would go a long way to sort of lift up the voices that are sometimes whitewashed within food media and like in particular around Asian food. Like don't, when you go to Google, it's going to give you a search result that is like the most SEO or search engine optimized. And that isn't necessarily the most authoritative voice. You might get some white Midwest food blogger who's trying to tell you that they have the best pad thai recipe or the best fried rice recipe, where if you did a little bit more digging, you would actually find a source and in in part, give them ad revenue when you're clicking and using their recipe and staying on their page. That is more genuine, more, I hate to use the word authentic, but, is just a better source where you'll actually learn chinese food techniques from an authority mm-hmm. yeah totally agree on that and there's also that and that's also another reason why everyone should go and check out the mr juice cookbook and buy it to add to their home library or request that their library has it so they can check it out
2: yes i love getting cookbooks from the library it's such a good way to preview a book to kind of get a sense of it. And then you can decide later on, honestly, if, if that's a book for you, you know, it's such a great resource. Well, yes. in this
1: case, I'm pre-ordering right now. <laughs> Just so you know, I'm, I'm
0: placing my order as we speak. <laughs> yes. Christine, thanks so much for joining us. We're
1: so happy to have you on this episode.
2: Thanks, guys.
1: Megan, I love what Christine said about Salt in particular, because I really do think that's one of the big differentiators between restaurant food and home food. Chefs know how to use salt, and they are not afraid of salt. And there's actually another ingredient I feel this way about. So it's not applicable to every cuisine, but butter. <laughs> Ooh, you butter. know that I love that so much butter in restaurant food and actually for cuisines that don't use butter it's the fat it's either ghee or it is olive oil or it is i don't know like bacon avocado fat. Yes. coconut
0: milk
1: yes but that fat at the end not being afraid to taste it and add a little bit more if you want to add some richness or depth of flavor can really go a long way
0: Yes. And I agree. And having both of us having been trained professionally, I think we really understand that dynamic of what Christine was saying, salt, and what you're saying, fat. And then the idea of also heat and acid. I mean, yeah, Samir Nasirat <laughs> wrote a whole book about yes. it, which could be considered the Bible. And what's so great about that is that it like Really distills all of that information, but it also backs up exactly what Christine was saying about walk cooking and how, like, a lot of times the difference between cooking at home and restaurant cooking is the application of heat, and like how at home maybe you have a little less confidence, maybe we're like a little timid, maybe we don't want to smoke up our tiny kitchen, but we're sort of like afraid of high heat cooking and that's where a wok is really great because it's designed for that but so is using your broiler or getting your grill ripping hot and even deep frying i mean that's high heat cooking in many ways and so those are some actual techniques that you can use to make your home recipes taste more like restaurant food is just not being afraid to give it a little like bamboo hot
1: flash zing. Yes, totally. (laughs) Totally. I mean, Samin was onto something. Salt, fat, acid, heat. Really, I mean, I do think that she, my understanding of the book is that she set out to say, you know, this is what makes a difference between what a professional cook knows and what you home cooks know. And actually, it's not that major a difference. It's not, you know, you don't have to be trained in particular techniques, but if you know how to manipulate these basic tenets of cooking, you can really elevate your food
0: yes i personally got a little bit nerdy in my like meal planning and meal prep brain and was also really excited to hear what christine shared about her cantonese grandmother and how a component of what made her such a wonderful home cook was that she planned and prepped like a restaurant cook and so i'm wondering stacy if there's anything that you do that's maybe like really intuitive to you now and and i'm not thinking of it like oh you're doing a bunch of meal prep or you're making a peking duck that takes two weeks to prep but are there like little things that you find yourself doing that help you have flavor boosters on hand
1: yeah i think that i think this is a really great point and it's like what we were talking about about the woman i was speaking with in turkey right that Every time you cook, cook once, eat twice. Make bigger amounts. Like, think about how you can use that in your cooking the next day to vary things up. And then also, just like you were saying, these flavor boosters, you know, pickling, quick pickling onions or jalapenos. Or I recently saw on TikTok my new source for all these. (laughs) (laughs) I saw that somebody just used a mandolin to slice a lemon real thin, just one lemon, and packed it in a mason jar and just poured honey over it. And then that sat for a week. And over the course of the week, the lemon seeps out its juice and its oils and flavors the honey and also thins it a little bit. And you end up with this lemony honey syrup that's great for cocktails or salad dressings or finishing sauces. And those kinds of little touches, oh, you know, toasting breadcrumbs, that's another Mm. one, you know, just heat olive oil in your pan, throw in panko breadcrumbs, you can throw in some garlic too, shave some Parmesan, and then let them cool and store in a jar in the fridge for the week, and then use that to finish a soup or a stew or a pasta or a salad you know, those little touches can also really elevate your cooking and make something that seems like plain home cooking feel a little bit more exciting. And it adds a lot of flavor too.
0: Yes. I love that. What you're saying about the lemons makes me also think of like quick preserved lemons where you're literally yeah. like combining salt and lemons and letting them sit. But also what you're saying about breadcrumbs made me think of like boxed back and (laughs) cheese. Which I know (laughs) your kids don't love, but, but hang with me here for a second, which is if we can do those little bits of prep For me, like sometimes it's making sure we have chopped herbs on hand or doing the breadcrumbs or like taking the big block of Parmesan and grating it. A lot of times it's box mac and cheese or it's that fresh packed tortellini or it's something that from our like freezer episode, you know, the idea of like we keep these five things in our freezer. And while my kids are happy to eat chicken nuggets straight up or annie's mac and cheese straight up i want something a little bit more and having something like toasted breadcrumbs and parmesan on hand that i can throw on top or fresh herbs to toss with like buttered noodles for them makes my meal more satisfying and sometimes that's all what it's all really about it's not necessarily cooking restaurant quality food for my family but for me to enjoy
1: I love that. And, you know, let me tell you, box mac and cheese with some quick pickled jalapenos is delish. Ask me how I know. (laughs) Um, And if you don't have time to prep these things, you know, I do think that what we're really talking about when we're talking about restaurant cooking versus Mm -hmm. home cooking is this perception that restaurant cooking and chefs have a better handle on how to amp up flavor. Yeah. So you can also use Hot sauces, you know, use your spice drawer more. We have an entire episode on using your spice drawer. That there are ways that you can boost whatever it is you're like, even rice. Like, if your kids like plain rice, make a pot, give them theirs portion out some of it while it's hot and add a little mirin. If you haven't purchased mirin at the supermarket before, it's in the Asian food aisle and it's really readily available. And it's got a little tang and a little bit of sweet and toss it with the hot rice, like two tablespoons. It's delicious. Yeah. It makes it feel like restaurant food. It just has a little bit more flavor or even just using little rice wine vinegar or cider vinegar on your rice. So don't be afraid of flavor. You know, if you can prep some stuff to boost the flavor, great. But otherwise, experiment with sauces and salt and spices. Okay, so
0: Stacey, you know what I want to know next is... What are the things that our very smart home cooks in our listeners community are already doing that boost flavor for their basic family meals? And is that inspired by their favorite restaurant meals? I can't wait to hear all about it. So I want to make sure that you know where to find our community. Look for Didn't I Just Feed You on Facebook. And the answer to, the, to join us is Whiskey. You can also follow our page on Facebook or follow us on Instagram. We're at Didn't I Just Feed You on all social.
1: Also, make sure you subscribed to our newsletter to get an exclusive recipe and a pick of the week every single week. You can subscribe at you.com or follow the link in our Instagram bio. And of course, don't forget to subscribe to Din I Just Feed You wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss a single episode.
0: Our music is Good Old Times by Alex Cohen, provided by Jamendo. A huge thank you to our editor,
1: Samantha Gatsik. I'm Megan. And I'm Stacy. Stay sane and well fed until next week.